Next week at UC Davis, uh, the Graduate Group in Ecology and Office of Graduate Studies will present Ecological Insights, a presentation by UC Davis alumna Caitlin O'Connell, who's author of The Elephant's Secret Sense. This has gotten quite a bit of publicity in National Geographic, Scientific American, and The Economist, as well as NPR's All Things Considered. Joining us now to talk about her research with pachyderms is our own Dr. Caitlin O'Connell. Welcome, Dr. O'Connell. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, In reading about this, you've apparently, I guess, broken some ground on how elephants communicate that was suspected they were using some, uh, I guess, low-frequency sound waves, and you set out to prove it. Yes, it had been discovered that elephants communicate with low-frequency sound, but what I set out to prove was that those sounds were actually coupling with the Earth and traveling through the Earth, and elephants were picking up those surface ripples on the Earth. So it's different than airborne transmission in that elephants are feeling the vibrations through their feet. So elephants, basically like I guess someone sitting on a subway, you can feel the vibrations of what's going on below. They're able to make something of that. It's exactly like that, but they have a very sophisticated ability to discriminate between the different subways that are going by. (laughs) All right. They're getting a lot of uh, input from nature, or is this elephant herds communicating across long distances? Well, what we think is happening is that elephants can interpret their environment better, possibly detecting thunder earlier than they could if they heard it in the air. Um, But also their vocalizations are propagating in the ground, and they can discriminate um, subtle differences between vocalizations, even within the same call type. So we would play back vocalizations through the ground and then measure their responses Um, as they react to these surface ripples. And it turns out that they can detect even within... um, So we played different alarm calls from different countries, and they only responded to the alarm call, and they were all made in the context of lions hunting. So these alarm calls, the elephants would respond from the ones that came from Namibia, from the uh, park that we were playing calls back to the elephants. So they did not respond to the alarm calls made in Kenya. And we weren't expecting that level of sophistication. We thought they could detect an alarm call and and just get out of there. But really, they were discriminating. Was this an alarm call, something important from somebody that they knew? So the elephants in Namibia speaking basically a Namibian uh, dialect of elephant language? Through the ground, too. Yeah. Not only in the air, but also in the ground. Dr. Connell, what distances do you find the elephants are able to communicate with each other across? Um, Well, physically, in the air, people have um, estimated about two to four kilometers uh, traveling in the air and and then an outer limit of about 10 kilometers under ideal airborne conditions where it's really cold and the sound travels kind of in a two-dimensional cylinder. Now, in the ground, um, there's a potential to travel further because there's, uh, one, there's a conservation of energy in the air, when you uh, every double, doubling of distance that, that you step away from another person, you lose half, you lose six decibels, and then in the ground you only lose three. So this sound is traveling cylindrically versus spherically. So it physically could travel further, um, but again, seismologists are looking for uh, a, a type of of um, ground wave that they try and get rid of all of these surface ripples. It's like when you have an earthquake in the um, parking lots and bridges are being broken up, it's really these high-amplitude surface waves. They want to get rid of that noise to try and measure how far an earthquake is. 
So the problem with that is that we don't have any good, real good uh, outer limit measurements for how far these waves can travel. And that's the subject of some of our current studies, is to really get a good handle on that to see if, if they really have a much ex more extended um, distance of, of uh, communicating. So I guess a, a lot of male elephants are out there trumpeting, looking, looking for mates and things like that. Are the elephants able to know that that's, uh, that's what's being sent out as well through the ground? Yes, but actually trumpets are higher frequency than what's called a rumble vocalization. So these vocalizations are all made in the range of 20 hertz, which is just below the human threshold of hearing. And those um, vocalizations, so a male that's interested in finding mates um, creates a must rumble, which is a low frequency repeated call, and that also propagates along the surface of the earth. And, and it basically adds a new modality for communication for elephants. Whether or not the signal can travel even further than the air, um, it's physically possible that it could, but it also just provides another dimension where they can, if you can imagine timing the distance between, uh, the distance away that a storm is and you're counting between thunder and lightning, elephants could do the same thing because the vocalization travels at a separate rate in the air versus the ground. So that would mean they, theoretically they could count the space between the airborne and the seismic signal to figure out how far away another elephant might be. Which is basically what scientists do when they're measuring earthquakes. Yes, exactly. Wow. So elephants have big seismometer feet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, does the elephant make the sound in the voice box and it travels down through its body, or does it go from maybe his throat to the ground? Well, that hasn't been figured out yet, but the, the elephant larynx is um, different than the human larynx. It's able to create lower frequency sounds, so it's missing a few bones. It only has five bones instead of eight. And these bones, um, the idea is that they can create this lower frequency signal. So we assume that since the larynx is adapted for this, that they probably are producing it in the larynx, but whether or not they resonate um, the vocalization using their diaphragm or whether it goes directly into the ground through their feet. We still haven't figured that out yet. And you spend a lot of time, I gather, in Africa. How, how do you view the elephant populations? Are they doing okay? Well, some places are doing extremely well such that there's very many of them and they're coming into, uh, they're having interactions with humans that are often negative because they're competing for land and resources, including water. So access to those resources are becoming a problem. But then in other areas, poaching is, is a big problem, and so it really depends on what the socio-political and economic status of, of the humans in those countries. Some places are doing really well, and others, they're, they're uh, coming under threat. Well, if someone wanted to go to Africa and maybe check out the elephant populations, where, where would you recommend they go? The Akavango Delta in Botswana is a wonderful place. To see elephants from a dugout canoe, um, the desert elephants in Namibia, uh, our population that's in Natasha National Park, um, big populations in Zimbabwe, Kruger's a lovely place in South Africa, but then you also you have the Serengeti and Amboseli uh, up in um, Kenya, Tanzania. There's, there's really fantastic places to see elephants. Zambia is another place very pristine and wild still. Well, I would like to add uh, what little I can that on a trip to Tanzania, I did see an elephant herd uh, somewhere near Ngoro Ngoro Crater, and it was one of the most spectacular things I think I've ever seen. I, I believe that that, yes. Uh, I have some of my most spectacular images include <laughs> elephants. So, 
Yes, that's that's another beautiful place to see them. Well, well Dr. O'Connell, you'll be speaking next uh, next Wednesday, public lecture at Mondavi. Um, that's at 7.30. Yes, elephant communication, um, also some new insights into elephant bull society that we're just learning about, um, the effect of hormones on behavior and how dominance hierarchies are set up. So all sorts of exciting things. All right. Well, I, I, I hope to be there and, and hear more about this because it's a very interesting subject, and I, and I appreciate your speaking uh, with us about it. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate being here. All righty. Dr. Caitlin O'Connell is a research associate at Stanford University. She's, of course, also a UC Davis alumnus and will be speaking next Wednesday at the Mondavi Center in a public lecture at 7.30 p.m. She'll also be speaking at a research lecture at 2.30 p.m. at UC Davis at 126 Wellman Hall. This is uh, free for students, faculty, and staff of UC Davis. On this program a few months back, we talked about some research being done here at UC Davis in improving wheat varieties. And of course, on last week's program, we talked about the threat to the world's wheat crop from a new type of rust. So what better time now to talk to uh, UC Davis's, uh, I guess, primary wheat breeder, Professor Jorge Dubkovsky. Welcome to the program, Dr. Dubkovsky. Thank you very, very much. What, what goes on in the wheat, the wheat research program here at Davis? Well, in relation to the, your question about rust, there are different types of rust. Uh, uh, the, 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 most, uh, the, the one that is producing the most damage in California is called uh, yellow rust or stripe rust. And uh, we have had a terrible epidemic since the year 2000 until now. We, in 2003, to give you an example, we lost 25% of the wheat crop in California. It was declared a, a disaster zone, basically. The race that you are mentioning is a race from another type of rust that is called stem rust. The disease that we defeated several decades ago by the introduction of uh, resistant genes, um, even though in the past it produced severe epidemics, in the last 40, 50 years there have not been any problem because we have a, a put resistant genes in our varieties, so the pathogen has, has never been successful again. But uh, Two years ago, well, in 1999, they discovered a new race in Uganda, in Africa. It's called, that's what's called UG99 from Uganda 99, that is virulent on those genes that have been affected over all these years. That means if you put a variety with a, a California variety with that race, it will, will have the disease again uh, here. So the, the pathogen is starting to move and has expanded and now has crossed to the Arabic Peninsula. And slowly, as it happened with the other races, will eventually reach us. So we need to, we are trying to be prepared and start introducing new resistant genes that are affected against that race. Now, one would imagine this is a case where genetic diversity and being able to go out there and find some strains that might be resistant is especially important. Exactly. We have, a, we have a, fortunately, we, we, we have been collecting wheat uh, and uh, wheat uh, relatives for several years, and there's a the small grain connection in, in Aberdeen is a, a beautiful resource of, uh, of uh, uh, genetic diversity. Uh, a collaboration has been established with CMIT, uh, USDA, and all the wheat breeding programs to make screenings directly in Kenya. So every year, we are, for the last years, we have been sending our materials and uh, samples of that genetic diversity in the small grain collection to Kenya to identify uh, new sources of uh, resistance to this pathogen. Unfortunately, so, some, some of the varieties are, 
a resistance and uh, for some of them we already know the genes that are responsible for that resistance and we are using them in our breeding populations and for others we are doing the genetic studies to, to discover which are the genes. And we should sort of just, uh, just by way of backtracking a bit, I don't think people are as familiar with agriculture as they used to be. This, this, this is a kind of a, a fungus that sort of shows up as black spots and wipes out the stem. Yeah, in, in, in the stem, it's a brown, yeah, dark brown spot, and then it, it produces a lot of damage in the stem, and then the, 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 the plants, the yields of the plants are greatly reduced. The striped rust, on the contrary, is mostly on the leaves, and uh, it appears as a bright orange spots and that they are organized as striped, so that's why the name of striped rust. And as an aside, how does this compare to like the, the ergot, the mold that used to appear on, on, on different crops, and I guess uh, was where we got LSD? Well, that, that is not a big problem in, um, in, in California at all, because it requires more humid regions. So our main pathogens are the striped rust, and followed with another pathogen that's called Septoria treatise blotch. Those are the main pathogens. Uh, for wheat in, in California. There are others, of course, there are some viruses, and, but the ones that have been producing the most damage in the last five years are those two. Well, I understand, too, uh, from this, this press release many months ago, you're doing a lot of research here in wheat regarding some, uh, how, how the plant flowers, and this may be important for changing climate in the future. That's uh, one, one trait that my, my love has, has done a, a good progress in, in, in something more basic. So this is not direct breeding, but what we are trying to do is to, to clone the genes that are responsible for the difference in flowering time of the, of the wheat varieties and to understand how flowering time is controlled so then we can engineer better varieties with uh, different requirements for, for flowering. So we, we have been successful. We cloned the, the main three genes that control flowering in wheat and those were published in high-profile scientific journals. So we're pretty proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's it's written that uh, that wheat is is the number one feeder of the world's population. Uh, what what might happen when this uh, this latest threat of, of this rust hits, say, India? Yeah, exactly. That 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 is one of the biggest uh, concern. There's a, a international consortium that uh, is the wheat rust initiative that has been organized. They're trying to help uh, those countries to introduce resistant genes as soon as possible. Uh, there's a, a, an attempt to to generate uh, proposals the Gate Foundations and other agencies. So uh, we, most of the countries are, are, that have wheat are working already in trying to develop and deploy solutions to this pathogen. There are tools. Today we have a, a technology that's called marker assisted selection. This is not transgenic. It's normal crossing. But then you use molecular markers that are just pieces of DNA that you can use to identify it as a, as, as a marker parts of the chromosome. So you do first a mapping experiment where you determine which of these markers is close to the resistant gene. And then you use the, that marker, that flag, to follow that piece of chromosome and move your genes into your variety. Of course, that requires technology, and not every country has access to that technology, but countries like India or China, or they have a very strong marker city selection programs, and they're already using the, those tools to try to, to be prepared. Well, that's kind of a high-tech solution. I want to ask about low-tech solutions. When I was a student at this university, we, uh, we talked about how my understanding was in the Ethiopian highlands, there were more varieties of wheat grown there than probably in the rest of the world combined. Uh, do people go out there and try and gather this germplasm for future banking? Yeah, we, we, I think that we have a good collections of, of wheat uh, worldwide. And, of course, it, would, it, it won't be a bad idea to have uh, additional collections. There are 
tens of thousands of accessions of uh, wheat collected all over the world in, in the small grain collection. So we have enough to start looking for resistance. And as I said, uh, the, the first screenings in Kenya have shown that we have a, a sufficient sources of resistance. So the, the, the problem is now deploying that resistance in time. All right. Uh, I guess Jared Diamond in his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, uh, talked a little bit about um, about how modern wheat uh, came from a certain mutation took place that allowed us to, to harvest wheat, uh, which I thought was very interesting. I guess wild wheat is not like the product that we grow. No, it's completely different. We are it's just, I'm, uh, you get me in the middle of writing a review about the origin of wheat. So I, oh. Yeah. So, yes, there's a mutation. There are actually two. Two mutations. There were two events of domestication of wheat. The, the, the original wheat have a spike that completely disarticulate, so the grains will fall apart and fall into the into the field. So, so you, you couldn't cannot, harvest them. You go to harvest no, them. exactly. Them. So the first mutation was a mutation that uh, resulted in a non-shattering spike, so a spike that will remain all together. Uh, so that was the first mutation that occurred around 10,000 years ago. And the first, the first domestication was in, in some mountains in Turkey and then expanded from there to, to the rest of the world. Those wheats that, uh, that, um, that have that mutation, they still have a problem that you cannot free the grain from the, from the chaff very easily. So there was a second mutation that uh, created what is called the free threshing wheats. And uh, that mutation, together with the previous one, resulted in, in the modern wheats that we cultivate today. Well, it's, it's interesting stuff, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad that here at UC Davis, you guys are continuing to put the pasta, the noodles, and the bread uh, on, our, on all of our tables. Yep. We, we, are re- we have already released a Durum pasta variety recently, and now we are preparing our new bread varieties to, to come out. So, yep, we are, we are trying to keep that going. <laughs> well, Professor Jorge Dubkovsky, uh, thank you very much for speaking with us, and perhaps uh, as, as you need to make some developments, you can come back in and tell us what those are. Okay. No problem at all. All righty. Joining us now, the program is one of our own, uh, one of our own here at uh, KDVS, one of our fellow public affairs hosts, Steve Lambert. Steve, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. Now, Steve, uh, can you remind the Parallax listeners a little bit about what you what you're doing every Friday at KDVS? Well, I have a show that goes from 8.30 to 9.30 that's a sort of collection of telephone conversations and sort of field recordings and interviews I do with people out in the world, and then I put it together into a sort of one theme. Um, Themes have been everything from uh, clothing and how you pick your clothing to whether or not God is real, and um, then that just gets cut together into a one-hour show. And I try to ask questions that are that have no way of really answering them. So the one I'm doing next, hopefully by the uh, in the next week or two, is about are we really free? Well, Steve, you've been a man after our our own heart, taking on the big issues and and using the freedom <laughs> that we're afforded here at KDVS to do whatever the hell we please. <laughs> but I'm sorry we haven't yeah. participated up till now. But uh, we'll see what we can do about that in the future. Because I know you send a lot of emails inviting others to, to join in. I set up a phone number um, so that anyone could call, and they could call anonymously um, and contribute to the show. And then um, anyone and everyone um, that wanted to contribute could sort of become part of the radio show. And, uh, you know, you called me the host earlier, but I actually don't talk <laughs> very all much right. on the show. All right. Sometimes not at all. 
So it's really made up of, you know, other people. All right. Well, we'll call we'll call you the producer then and prime mover. <laughs> well, Steve, you're also you're a conceptual artist and a rather unusual for people living out here in uh, the greater Davis area. You've been written up in the New York Times. Tell us about that. I had this uh, idea for a browser, a web browser plugin. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different software people used to look at the at the World Wide Web, um, Internet Explorer, Firefox, or Safari. These are like the three big ones. And uh, within Firefox, you, it's an open source program, which means people can modify it and change it and contribute to it. And they can also contribute um, extensions or plugins, little bits of code or software that can change or improve the browser. So some of them, you know, will show you the weather in the bottom corner or have a way to control your music player and others, you know, um, there's one out there called Adblock Plus that blocks all the advertising. So if you go to, say, the New York Times or some um, site that has advertising, it just removes it. And um, those types of plugins or extensions are the most popular uh, of all. They're, they're, they're by far, and um, they're downloaded by millions of people. So the idea that I had was, you know, instead of just replacing it with nothing, or white space to replace it with um, art, uh, art images, and sort of turn it into a, a museum or a gallery within your browser. And so I started working on the project, and, and um, I'm, at, I'm on a fellowship at this place, iBeam, which is an art and technology center in New York. And there's people around here that, if you say, hey, you know, can you? Is this possible? Is, is there a way that this can be done? They most often the answer is yes, and uh, I have a weekend, and I'll 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 try to see what I can do. So we made a sort of prototype, and I started to look for funding to um, to get it further developed. So that got picked up, and then um, somehow the Times heard about it, and uh, there was a story earlier this week. All right. Well, we should refer people to the article by Andrew Adam Newman at the New York Times, titled "Web Fight: Blocking Ads and Adding Art." Where would people go if they want to know more about this? Uh, is there a place to go? Um, well, that plugin specifically uh, is there's a website that's www.adart.eyebeam.org. And um, I also have a, my own work is up at visitsteve.com. All right. Well, very good. Steve Lambert. Uh, just, I guess, a final question. You had a, a one-day performance in Davis welcoming commuters yeah. at the train station. How'd that go down? It was pretty fun. Um, <laughs> for about two hours, you know, we had a marching band and free popcorn and this guy who was posing as the king of the city welcoming people to Davis and saying goodbye to those that left, and we had a great time. I imagine a lot of jaws were dropping as they were stepping off the train and finding this committee. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we had flowers for them and uh, keys to the city, which were just keys that my wife has collected over the last few years, painted gold. There was confusion and delight. All right. Well, I hope I hope you will do more of the same, and we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do to, to spread the word. All right. Well, Steve Lambert, uh, thanks for speaking with us. You'll be back uh, uh, tomorrow morning, I guess, at 8.30 a.m. on uh, here at KDVS. Yes. Steve Lambert is the purveyor of... The Steve Lambert Show, part of our public affairs program lineup here at KDVS. The Steve Lambert Show airs every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and can be heard on our website, kdvs.org. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.